Jean-Pascal Tricoir is chairman and CEO of Schneider Electric, the global leader in the digital transformation of energy management and automation. Some numbers on Schneider Electric, sales about 30 billion euros, net income about 3 billion euros, around 130,000 employees and more than 200 factories all over the world. Jean-Pascal Tricoir has been at the helm of Schneider Electric for 16 years, first seven years as the CEO and over the last nine years as the chairman and CEO. During these 16 years, the company has done remarkably well. Financially, with revenues basically multiplied by three and a stock price that at the start of 2022 had been multiplied by six. Reputationally also, as the company has received multiple awards and honors for the way it does business, Fortune Most Admired Companies, uh, among the most ethical companies in the world, for its environmental commitment and impact, in particular, Corporate Knights Global 100 list for 10 years and number one on that list in 2021, number four in 2022. And finally, also awards and recognition in terms of employee recognition from organizations such as Glassdoor and best companies to work for. So this is an organization and a CEO that we can all learn from. Jean-Pascal, a warm welcome to you. Thank you. Jean-Pascal, Schneider Electric, the global leader in the digital transformation of energy management and automation. Can we be a little bit more precise? Can you tell us a little bit about the various areas and activities of the company and also the geographical footprints across the various regions of the world? In very simple terms, we are everywhere where you live, where you work and where you travel. In a very focused manner, we power and we digitize every part of your environment. Speak about smart homes, smart buildings, data centers, smart manufacturing, smart cities. We are actually the technology behind all of those facilities. So our turnover is, as you said, more than 30 billion euros. Half of our business is between building and data centers. We are by far the biggest provider of energy systems to data centers. On 50% in industry, on infrastructure, in heavy duty applications. And in all of those applications, we bring together electrification and digitization. Electrification for decarbonization, digitization for efficiency, all of this targeted to making our cities, our companies, the places where we live and work more sustainable. That's what we do. In terms of geo, pretty simple. I would argue, in modesty, that we are probably one of the most global or the most global company in our industry and in the world. We do roughly 30% of our business in Asia. Actually, Asia is our largest region then 30% in North America, 25% in Europe, on the rest, which is very sizable, close to 20% between South America, Africa, Middle East, uh, the rest of the world. So that's us in a nutshell. Can we be even more concrete? So you say we help power data centers and buildings. Give us an idea of some of the products or some of the systems that you guys create. In a data center, your biggest expense is energy on actually electricity. And the biggest condition of your success is the quality of your energy because one small interruption on the whole system goes amok and your customers cannot operate anymore. So what we do here is to supply a complete integrated chain of power from the grid to the server, making sure that there is total reliability of power supply we call it the 5.9. It's 99.99999% reliable, means no interruption. And at the same time, we bring the efficiency in terms of consumption to its most extreme level. And that is called the power utilization efficiency coefficient, which means that basically there is no waste between what is consumed on the grid and what is used for computing. That's what we do. But we do the same thing in, a, in the building. Our big, big objective of every day is net zero buildings. A building should be net zero today. Net zero homes. In manufacturing, it's also to decrease the exposure of our customers to fossil fuel, which today is very expensive and is creating vulnerability because of shortages and so on. So all the time, reliable, safe energy, but at the same time, 
efficient and sustainable. Now, there is, as I read, uh, still a little bit of your activity related to the distribution of energy, but it's, it's very small. So I guess you decided some time ago to focus on energy management rather than distribution. Why? No, actually, what we uh, didn't focus on was centralized generation. So those big plants out there on what is called transmission. So those big lines of transmission of electricity. From 20 years ago, when basically I was appointed at the head of the company, we were a pretty young team, right? In our 40s. I was 40, my team was 40, and many of us had operated into new economies. Places where you have no grid, you can start anew, you can start with a blank sheet of paper. And when you start anew, you don't have to do it the old way, which was all centralized, uh, very heavy, uh, very difficult to adapt. What we encompassed or saw at that time is that everything we were using at the point of demand thanks to the Internet of Things, thanks to software, thanks to edge controls, could be made infinitely more efficient. So that you save a lot, you don't consume a lot. And once you have reduced that consumption and everything is connected, you can also become a producer of energy. So you can have a micro grid, you can have solar panels, you can have storage, so that basically your home, your building, your manufacturing can to a very large extent, become independent from the rest. When you decentralize energy like this, then you empower everybody to participate to the resolution of climate change, to the resolution of energy price and so on. So we really focused on this decentralized part of energy, on the downstream part of the chain of energy, because we were convinced that this would be the place where technology is the biggest disruptions happening in, in the past 20 years, which namely are Internet of Things and digitization of objects, and second, renewables, that means decentralization and decarbonization of energy, those would be the place that would be the most impacted. And this is the place where we saw the most opportunity. And I believe that the company should be focused. So saying that means that we would defocus from transmission and generation. So we sold everything in the company that was on the upstream and focus on the downstream. Fast forward where we are today, clearly the future of energy is about decentralization. It's about you and me being able locally because of digital to understand exactly what we are doing and trim down our consumption to very low level. It's about you and me being able to produce locally a large part of our energy. That means we are all becoming a small power station. Beyond that, it's you and me transitioning the energy usages to more electricity because it's the only way to decarbonize. And if you have an electric vehicle, you realize that your house or your office has become also your gas station. So what used to be very centralized is getting very decentralized and you are getting very much empowered on the way you consume energy, on the way you produce energy. And we had, and we still have today, a very strong conviction is that energy transitions in the history of humanity don't happen through the supply of energy. They happen through the usages of energy. Cars won't be electric because there was more electricity. Cars will become electric because one company changed the rules of the game and made an electric car much more attractive than an IC, a combustion engine vehicle. So that, that's what we, we bet on. And as you said, it turned to our advantage because we've tripled the size of the company while most of the industry was, the rest of the industry, focused more on the old model, went down or declined or reduced as the market was going towards the downstream of it. Now, you've already started answering my next question. And my next question was starting from something which I hope you will not think is too iconoclastic. I do remember Schneider Electric some time ago, about 20 years ago, as, as a pretty Europe-centric kind of supplier of relatively commoditized uh, electric components. And that's quite a transformation, of course, to this global leader in the digital transformation of energy management and automation. Now, this transformation, as I understand it, has had three pillars, digital, 
sustainability and, and mergers and acquisitions. Can we start with sustainability? And please allow me to ask you how the focus has changed. Because in the late 90s, some folks within Schneider Electric were talking about philanthropy, and then it became corporate social responsibility and relatively rapidly became sustainability. And it's been, it's been at the core of your transformation. Can you walk us through this evolution and what it has meant in terms of strategy development and implementation? So this whole focus of Schneider on sustainability started back at the turn of the century, 20 years ago. And it seems now very obvious, but at that time it was very contrarian. Yeah. Uh, if you remember the beginning of the turn of the century, uh, Europe and the rest of the world was getting equipped with more drilling, more gas speakers, more, more, more. With my team, and myself particularly, I was coming from an experience, a long experience in emerging countries, the China of the 90s, Sub-Saharan Africa, where you soon realize that first, energy is the absolute fundamental right for everybody on Earth because it's, again, it's your access to a decent life. I, I still think that digital is your other access, your passport to education and economic inclusion. Therefore, we tackled both. But when you were living in those places, at the turn of century, you were also realizing that the model that we had had for a fraction of humanity, which is basically the mature countries, as we call them today, wouldn't be applicable, would be impossible, or would be not sustainable if we deploy it the same way into the majority of the population in emerging countries. So from the beginning, we said our speciality, we want to be the partner of our customers to be more efficient and to be more sustainable. Achieve more while using much less of the resources. We had the strong conviction that this was possible because there were two disruptions in front of us. The first one was that combination of IoT, everything connected, big data, huge lakes of data provided by things. Things really gossip a lot. They produce a lot of data. They speak all the time. If people on the internet speak all the time, machines speak much more. And on that data, deploy software, artificial intelligence to connect everything together and optimize everything together. So digitization as a fundamental disruptor of the notion of efficiency on energy efficiency. And the second one, of course, was the emergence, at the beginning very expensive, but soon to be very cheap, emergence of decentralized and decarbonized energy. And when you connect the two, connecting everything from your local power plant to the plug, from plug to plant, as we called it, in 2007, then you got a scale of optimization that you never had before. And second, you can empower everybody on helping to find a solution. And when everybody's working in the same direction, of course, the efficiency of all this is much better than having it relying on some centralized organizations. So this is where we pushed everything. Like, really, let's take the a contrarian view to the world of energy that was all working in selling more, drilling more, transforming more, and saying, no, let's achieve more while using less. And at that time, we defined our motto, which was, we want to empower all on Earth to make the most of their energy and resources. So with the same amount of consumption, do much more. Just the contrary of what was done at the time. And of course, that's what the world needs to do, right? It's estimated that the consumption of electricity will essentially double by 2050. It's also believed that we need to decrease the production of greenhouse gas emission by about 50%. So there's a factor of four here that needs to occur. But what I find very interesting is that when a lot of companies in the late 90s were talking about philanthropy, philanthropy is we do our business and then alongside our business, we do a little something for the world. And then there was corporate social responsibility, which was we do our business and then, you know, we got to be responsible citizens. But I think very early on, you guys said, no, 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 we're going to make sustainability our business. It's not something that we do alongside. It is at the heart of the way we think of our products and services. Yeah, I, that's quite fundamental in understanding the why on the how, the why of, of our strategy and the how we executed on it. So, the first point is really, as you said it, and I, I don't re-explain what I said, having that view, sustainability and efficiency 
became actually the whole purpose of all of our technologies. And that has been a massive transformation. When we started the journey, 5% of the turnover of Schneider was speaking to sustainability. As we speak today, 70% of what we sell is bringing sustainability solution to our customers. So five to 70%. The other thing, leveraging what I mentioned, digitization, which is today roughly 50% of our business. At that time, it was almost nothing. Leveraging electrification, which at that time was 6 billion euro and today was, is close to 25 billion euro in terms of turnover. That's about aligning completely your strategy, your purpose, your strategy on sustainability. Sustainability is the aim of our strategy. The second point also immediately, as we had the ambition to develop fast, was to find a compass of behavior for our people. So we are one of the earliest adopters of the UN Global Compact. I'm speaking 20 years ago. And it was so, now that we had defined the what, and aligned it on sustainability, wanted everybody who joined the company to be aligned on the how. And we used from the beginning the SDGs and so on to do so. And then we went deep into deploying that. So we put into place company plans every three years with multi-criteria axis of progression in the domain of ESNG. This has been part of us for now almost 20 years. And that goes deep, that runs really deep because a part of the bonus of everybody in the company is fixed by it from the lowest level of the company to the top. We report this, we audit this, we audit this as financial for now a long time. And, and normally we overshoot those objectives, I would say even more surely than the, our financials because people are super motivated. That speaks to them, right? That speaks to the reason, but that speaks to the heart of our people. So I would say this is the way we, we deployed it. You said before, and I want to correct you, that the triptych of the growth of Schneider was sustainability, digital, and behind it, the sustainability, I put electrification, digital and m and I, I don't think m and was part of the triptych. M&A is a mean to an end, right? and we, we've done it. But the real, the real leg, third leg of the triptych was new economies. Because you remember the Schneider of that time, which was one third smaller. We are actually very, very small respect to our competitors and, and respect to the environment. And we said at that time, the only way for us to get to the critical size is to go to a place which is less comfortable, but which will be the center of gravity of urbanization, industrialization, digitization. And of course, it means go fast to emerging countries. And today, and at that time, emerging countries were 10 to 15% of our turnover. Today, it's more 40 to 45% of our turnover. And that has changed completely the culture of our company because we've learned a new pace, a new speed, a new capacity of adaptation to very uh, different terrains on grounds, really a different way of thinking. I'll come back on this in a second. One last question on, on the sustainability side. You mentioned it already. You didn't call it. I think internally it's called the Schneider Sustainability Impact. It's like a balanced scorecard entirely focused on ESG dimensions. Is that, is that a fair point? So, so instead of having in your balanced scorecard one or two ESG-related indicators, I guess you, you click on this and, and suddenly it expands into 20-plus indicators. Is that a fair way so, of, of yeah, describing it's it? Absolutely. It, it, uh, and this has been, again, by trenches of three years with us for the past uh, 15 to 20 years. I, I say 15 to 20 because the first prehistoric version of it were a bit more uh, rudimentary. But it's been pretty, very structured and very deployed in every part of the company for the past 15 years, for sure. And it's a multi-criteria set of priorities that we define for the next three years. We don't work on everything at the same time with the same intensity. And the sum of this, 
defines a rate of achievement, and this rate of achievement defines success, and according to that level of success, people get actually uh, rewarded and recognized. And when we fail, we take it very personal. Now, shifting to the digital side, you've already started mentioning it. One of the elements that I found, again, researching this uh, for this conversation, is an element called EcoStructure, which was a system that you guys developed to give transparency to your customers on their electricity usage and, and management. And one of the key dimensions, at least as it was explained in the articles that I read, was that it was an open system approach as opposed to what some of your competitors were doing. So please tell us how you thought of this and how you implemented this. So we launched, we launched EcoStructure 12 years ago. And EcoStructure is our IoT platform. Take it as a plug-and-play, ready-to-run architecture to connect everything which is critical for you. Your energy infrastructure, of course, but also your manufacturing, your key processes. You were speaking about data centers. So EcoStructure has various declinations. It connects your manufacturing, its EcoStructure plant and machine. It connects your building, EcoStructure building. It connects your data center, it's called EcoStructure IT, and so on. And once you have all of those EcoStructures connected, you have digitized your company into one data hub. Since we launched EcoStructure, we've gone to another level of, I would say, proposal to our customers. Once we had helped our customers to digitize and optimize their building factories and so on, their enterprises, well, you have a lot of data. And we created a unique data hub, which is optimized for industrial application, putting together operation data, asset data, energy data, carbon data, so that they can work on the data based on their own development of software or the system integrators, their IT hours or whoever. And of course, we have developed our own portfolio of software. We've put that into specialized companies, company called Aviva, which is really reputed in the industrial field, companies like ETAP in the field of energy, companies like RIB in the field of construction. And our customers can, on that data hub, consolidate not only the data coming from Schneider, but the data coming from every other system. And based on that amount of data, which has no equivalent, run either a portfolio of software, which basically creates your, let's say, enterprise metaverse, 3D digitization of everything you have. You can visit a factory in 3D. You can assist an operator on the shop floor with augmented reality Google. That is all existing in the cloud once you have deployed that. You can have your industrial twin, your energy twin, working together for higher level of efficiency. So take the old story of Schneider. It all started from the customer. The customer says, I want to be more efficient. We said, you have to get connected. We created EcoStructure, IoT platform. We go into data platform, right, the data hub. Then we create the industry twin, that's Aviva, the energy twin, that's ETAP and RIB. And with that, our customers have access to the full digital twin of the enterprise. And we call it the enterprise metaverse because if you would have time, I would give you an Oculus Google and you could visit all of our factories in digital in this, this world, which think about the implications. We can optimize energy supply or energy consumption on a global and holistic base. Think that we can train our operators before they go onto the floor, into the shop floor, which is always a dangerous environment, and train them fully in 3D on the digital before they go there. During COVID, when it was impossible to travel, we could help operators on the shop floor to intervene on the machines because we had all the data available. So those are all the things that this new digital world opens to the world of buildings, manufacturing and cities. Now, a key thing, Jean-Pascal, is that this means that along the way, Schneider Electric stopped being kind of a hardware and product company and also became very much a software company. And of course, one that integrates software and hardware. But the reality is there are many industries for whom software has become very central over the last few years. 
But there are also many companies that found it very difficult to become good at this software thing and, and at integrating the two. What were some of the reasons that you guys were successful at this, that you not only managed to develop a strength in software, but also managed to create this now integrated capability? <laughs> it's a good question and it's a journey and we learn every day. But Let's start by one thing. We love software, but we love things. We love products, right? And the Internet of Things starts with the best things in the world. People don't come to us and say, I want the best Internet. They still want the best electrical system or the best industrial automation system. So I believe that as the future goes into that mix of the digital world and the physical world, it's going to be very important for companies to be able to be great on both fronts. And, and even if you think about what's happening in the world of telecommunication or IT and everything, the most brilliant companies have been able to deliver great hardware coupled with great applications and services. And this is where we get really addicted to those systems because they are really more efficient to all of us. So as we are developing in software, we made sure that those companies in software would operate autonomously. Very strong links with okay. the rest of the company, but they would keep their culture. They would keep also, and I said it before, as soon as you enter that digital space, we want the digital space to work with Schneider hardware or control systems or with anybody else. This space is neutral. This space is a Switzerland of software. It goes with everything on a neutral base. And with that, it's important to have our people in companies which are dedicated to that. Aviva, ETAB, those are neutral companies. And then we build the bridges in between. What is really important, I think, also in that journey is our culture. When we developed in digital, we couldn't do everything by ourselves organically. We did a lot organically. I would say 50% if I look at count, if I look investment and so on, 50% organic on 50% with acquisition. That point of view is a very specific culture of Schneider, which has been built accepting differences geographically by type of business, has been an incredible asset because people who are coming from software were not feeling rejected by the company, but they were feeling accepted with the differences. So we never tried to over-integrate, but build the bridges between the two worlds on bridges that would be beneficial to our customers. Okay, so selecting acquisitions well and then allowing them to continue to function in a way that fits software development, but creating strong bridges and also with an additional glue being the Schneider culture. Now, let me build on this point because this open culture, when I worked with Schneider Electric back then, was not as apparent as it is today. And and I think that one of the reasons is that in 2011, you chose to not only move yourself, but also move the headquarters of the organization to Hong Kong. And you also decided to implement more of a hub system. I think you have three major hubs. And clearly, that was a very significant decision, right? Schneider Electric was relatively well integrated in the French ecosystem. And when you took the company and the headquarters to Hong Kong, I imagine that this created a certain amount of uh, distress in some parts of the French society. But more importantly, what led you to make this decision? You already said earlier, we wanted to be closer to high growth environments, but what were you hoping it would achieve organizationally in terms of culture, in terms of decision making, in terms of access to talent? There are several parts in this equation. The first point is looking at the world, and again, I'd spend a lot of time outside of my country of origin. While I come actually from a very local part of France, so I still understand deeply what local is, and I love it, by the way. To be very personal, I took my first plane when I was 23. So, look, I, I understand what local is. But at the same time, we were seeing that the world, I believe that the world will be global. But I'm sure of one thing is as more countries of the world are acceding to prosperity, the difference of our cultures reappearing in a very strong manner. And that was written from day one. I was living in China in the 90s, and it was obvious that China has and will have a culture of its own. And the same in India, the same in, uh, in Africa, and so on and so on. So it was important to define a model 
that would benefit from being global, but at the same time would put decisions where the difference is made, which is by region. I don't believe in big, I believe in fast. So what was really important is to have teams completely in sync, language, culture, people, with the ecosystem to go much faster. Then there is another belief, because I come from deep local, I would say, is that companies get accepted when they contribute. And when you do like Schneider, we have actually much more than three hubs. We have many more hubs. Uh, we have actually four main hubs on plenty of other locations, one of them in Switzerland, by the way. But we make sure that for those four main hubs, which are namely North America, Europe, India, and China, we are equipped with R&D, marketing, sales, manufacturing, on their ecosystem of suppliers and partners so that they can go really fast and they can make decisions. Think about how this made the difference when COVID hit the world. Right. We were up and running. So that's number one. The second point, and that's more personal again, I come somewhere from nowhere, right? And I believe in meritocracy. And in a company like ours, which operates in 100 countries, anybody, wherever, she or he comes from, should be entitled to get to the highest level of the company. That cannot work in companies where you have one large headquarter in a place. Because most of the people want to take care of their elders, of their siblings. Most of the people want to live where they feel comfortable. So having and innovating from that point of view of organization where the all of my leadership team is spread out across the world, in very different places, gave us multiple advantages. I can appoint to the head of a company, big leadership position, anybody from anywhere in the world in a snap. I don't need to have that person moving and so on and so on. So that gives access to a much larger pool of talent. Okay. And it can create many more aspirations for the people of, of Schneider. Second advantage, is that for every decision we make at Schneider, there will be people around the table, which actually is a video call, who come from very different parts of the world, see the world in a very different manner, are exposed to very different winds. It gives us a wealth of inspiration for every decision we make, and it fosters a much higher respect for each other. I tell you, since I've been in Asia, tell you meetings really start on time and finish on time because when you finish very late in the evening, you don't want any babbler or somebody who is gossiping too much or talking too much to drag you into long meetings. So, and it makes us different. In a world, I would say the more the situation are complex, companies tend to centralize to gain more control, which is an illusion. Actually, the more systems are becoming complex, the more you have to decentralize because people can manage in a much more agile way, an adapted way to those complex situations. Now, this sounds extremely appealing, of course. It is also not easy to do, right? If it had been easy to do, uh, more companies would operate on such a, a decentralized and, yes, decentralized sort of way. So what are some of the challenges that you faced implementing this new way of working and, and how did you overcome these challenges? Including during COVID, right? We all realized we can operate through technology-mediated interactions, but we also realized that we were losing a lot of a lot of you know the regular chit chat, which enables an organic alignment. You know, a lot of the conversations became very focused on work, and and I think we were losing on this organic alignment. So. How have you, again, what are the challenges that you faced creating this multi-hub organization and, and, and how did you overcome these challenges? Well, first you mentioned it, uh, and it started by one simple thing is me moving, right? And it, uh, it takes a family, I would say, sacrifice on, uh, on for many people of, of my leadership team. We wanted this, I wanted this project. You have to show the example, right? and you take the flack of, because it's not a usual model, especially for a, a blue chip companies as we were at the time, uh, to do that kind of thing. But I would say even tech companies today tend to be very centralized from what I, uh, I see today. So it took us to do it. I left 11 or 12 years ago now. Yeah, it's 11 years ago. And we, uh, because why was that? Because at that time we were underdeveloped in Asia. We are not at the level we are wanted. And look, 10 years after, Asia is our largest region. 
by a large amount. And no surprise, it's 60% of the world population, 50% of the GDP, but we have really strong operation in India, in China, in Southeast Asia. So from that point of view, you have to lead from the front and to show the example. Second point on back to basics, it's all about people. At the end of the day, if you have the right people, you have the right company. We say at Schneider that great people make a great company. At the end of the day, my job is all, our job is all about people. On, on finding the right people, on empowering those people, there is no point to select great people to micromanage them. So what you need is, is really great people. And then after, I would say, is a strong set, and I spoke to that, of values, behaviors, understanding on what is expected, strong direction, which is easy at Schneider. We are a very focused company. Everybody works for the same thing. And we have defined what we expect of our people within the global compact frame of work. So it's larger than us. It's we have a frame of reference which goes beyond what we do. And finally, because you are all spread around the world, it goes, and that seems a bit contradictory, but with a lot of discipline. So really working on working on the model so that we compensate that scattering around the world with points in time and in the world where we are going to be all together for long time. I can make an example. Last time I gathered with my leadership team post-COVID for the first time, it was two weeks, two weeks together. So it's a commitment, right? But making sure that during those times you build the face-to-face, -face, informal time, pleasure time, fun time, celebration time that you couldn't have or you cannot have uh, through videos. Those are a few of the other things. But at the end of the day, it's profoundly about choice of people, on the way you interact together, culture, values, sense of common direction, uh, reads back, back to the human dimension, which is the most important in company. Great people make a great company. How involved are you in the recruitment of, I don't know, the top 100? It is said that Steve Jobs was spending quite a bit of time making sure that the top 100 of Apple were indeed the right people. Are, are you personally involved in a lot of recruitment discussions? Yeah, I, I wouldn't recruit everybody myself, that's for sure. But we, as an executive committee, spend systematically the most of our time on those collective discussions about people. So if you are in charge of this business of Schneider and you want to appoint somebody report, we're going to discuss it as a group because that group of people under you will be in an interaction with the rest of the company. And it's important that we share a view on the pluses, the minuses, the qualities and things on such and such individual. And yes, we spend a lot of time on this subject. Now, I want to shift to a, a more governance question. You've been chairman and CEO of the company for about nine years. This combination of the chairman and CEO role is debated in governance circles. What has led you and, and the board to continue to maintain this approach as opposed to splitting up the two roles as a number of governance observers suggest? So during my uh, almost 20 years as CEO, CEO and chairman of the company, Company, I've done half and half, half dissociated and half associated. And frankly, I didn't see much of a difference because when we, I was appointed chairman and CEO for one very simple reason, is that 10 years ago, our three major countries and three major places of our investors were more working in an associated manner. So people were understanding better that chairman and CEO was associated. But we were at least in France, the first company to bring on a lead independent director who is actually had more prerogatives than a non-executive chairman. And then five committees headed by independent directors. So making sure that each decision of the board would be studied in committees where I don't necessarily participate. So frankly, the two formulas are really possible to put into place, provided that they are sorted with the right check and balances. This is an important point that you're making, that it's not just a structure, it's also a set of processes, the committees, and the presence of a lead independent director. Now, I want to ask you a few more personal questions, because as you know, I'm a professor of leadership by trade, so I, I have to ask a few personal questions. But maybe one last one on you as a CEO versus the rest of the world. So in a recent interview with the Financial Times, you, you said, 
I don't consider myself at all a political figure. You said, look, there's no point in participating in the big noise. You know, work on the fundamentals and keep working on the fundamentals. And of course, I, I understand the, the reasoning. There's also another way of looking at it, which is that the world needs to hear from progressive and successful CEOs such as yourself, including to help governments to get better acceptance from their citizens for measures that are more environmentally friendly. I mean, the Yellow Jacket uprising in France a few years ago started with the government trying to tax diesel fuel a little bit more. So is there an argument for people like you to speak out more to accelerate the world's understanding of the importance and the urgency of the change. Look, I, I would like the world to speak less and to be less controversial for uh, the sake of controversy. And I, I would like the world to do more. One of the reasons why I've chosen to be in the industrial part of the equation that I like to do, I like to innovate, I like to create, I like to provide solutions. So number one, we engage everywhere where the politics, the community wants to engage with us. I could, you spoke about the, the yellow vest. When it happened in France, immediately with a group, a small group of CEOs, we launched a task force to create more inclusion. So help small companies to get more access to our procurement. Help apprentices. We doubled the number of apprentices in two years to make sure that kids would have practical jobs, would build a real profile. And we were already at that time employing a number of apprentices, which is not typically French for a company like us, but we were already deeply engaged and we doubled up, and so on and so on. We had a number of initiatives. I participate to multiple groups of think tanks with governments around the world, everywhere. If they ask, we participate, we contribute, we try to help building something which is pragmatic and connected to what we see from our company point of view. I would say also that we've been one of the early founders of the Global Compact, which right. is that community of companies that want to make our companies more sustainable. I've been the president of the Global Compact in France for six years, for two mandates. I'm part of the board of the Global Compact. Right. This is another sort of engagement that we have. But where I feel the proudest of is when we bring electricity to people who didn't have access to electricity, green electricity, 50 million of them. When to do that, we train 1 million of young people who had no training before, no qualification, and then become the energy provider of their communities and village. This is when we make the difference. When there is a catastrophe, it can be a flood, a tornado and things, and we are the first one to reestablish energy and electricity. We don't speak, we do. And this is a place where I feel really the proudest. So this is where I prefer to contribute because we are really good at that. And I let the other ones speak. But when they want to think together on a sincere base, that means they want to do things, we are always there. Very fair. Now, Jean-Pascal, your career has been extraordinary. You mentioned earlier you became CEO at a very young age. Can you try to leave modesty aside for just uh, two, three minutes and, and try to parcel out when you think of your own journey? What is due to luck? Because clearly all of us need some luck. What is due to a few Schneider Electric senior executives that I think had a, a particular eye for and interest in developing talent? And then maybe a few qualities that, that you have and or developed. Can you try to parcel out the weight of these in your, in your rise? I think the most important feature is luck at the end, right? At the beginning and at the end. So you can, you can dress it up, you can do, but luck is really important in life. Second thing in my case, it's been really to choose unconventional jobs. Okay. for the first 15 years of my career. And that definition for me of unconventional was jobs that nobody wanted to have. And they were normally creation, developments, outside of the mainstream, the fringe of the empire, the things that are very risky, very uncertain. So, and I systematically did that, and that drove me to Italy, to uh, uh, small companies, actually, small and medium companies of Italy. That drove me to start together with a team Schneider in China in the 90s when nobody wanted to go there. 
then to Africa at a time when it was difficult to go to Africa and so on and so on. Doing that, I think I learned much more than anybody else. And it gives you a curiosity on an exposure which is very different. It goes with risk-taking, of course, but I was more interested by what I was doing than the title that was proposed to me. And, and that is still a way I assess people. Are they, do they want to do something or do they want to be somebody? And I think it's really more important to do something for anybody in the world on, on that main criteria. The third point, I would say, I, I would say people, attention to people, respect to people, bringing the people along, understanding that it's not easy every day for anybody. So you have sometimes to accelerate, sometimes you have to pose with people, you have to help. And if you choose the best people, you are attentive to people, then you have a chance really because at the end of the day, you never succeed alone. Actually, you never succeed alone. You succeed because the people working with you are succeeding. And when I try to assess a leader, I'm not interested by their presentation. I look at their team. If you want to know about somebody, look at the team. That speaks a lot more than this person who can be brilliant, speak beautifully and do these slides and those kind of things. What is really important is which kind of people do they bring along and how do they work together? I want to still ask you about some of those Schneider Electric leaders, because you don't know this, but one day I sat in a large room in Paris during a meeting with the top 600 people of Schneider Electric, and I actually gave a speech during that, uh, that event, and then I sat down with Henri Lachman on the first row, and you and some of your young ex-co-colleagues were on stage talking, and Henri was constantly chatting me, saying, they're great, huh? they're great, and they're young. You've noticed they're great and they're young. And I remember this moment, A, because I felt very embarrassed because I knew that 600 people were seeing me chat instead of watch what was on screen, but also because I was admiring the interest in others and the joy in developing younger people that this man seemed to have. Can you comment a bit on this? I had the chance to have what is called happy succession with my predecessor. Henry Lachman that you mentioned was my predecessor. We had, and we still have 25 years of difference. I knew the business already when he appointed me much better than him because he was very new in the company. True. But he knew the job of CEO and he knew the French establishment and he still knows it better than I do. We learned from each other and we helped each other and he let me develop this new step in uh, the company. But I've always thought that every, I spoke a lot about people probably during our, our, our discussion, but I, I've always learned a lot from other people and especially the elder generations everywhere I've been, everywhere I've worked. So as much as you develop young people, you also get a lot of knowledge or draw a lot of knowledge from people who've developed the company in more, in previous times. And from that learning, there is always acceleration that you can deduct. If you can save all the mistakes that they've done, or, and if you can accumulate all the learning that they've accumulated, plus really understand what are the unique features, the unique strong features of the culture of the company that you can build on. Then you build a continuum in the history, the culture of the company, which is really useful because it makes acceleration so much easier when you have strong foundations. So at the end of the day, I've always considered that I wanted to transform the company profoundly, and I think we've done that. But at the same time, we've done it, making sure that each step wouldn't put at risk the fantastic legacy that we had from the past. Two final quick questions, Jean-Pascal. One, in a recent Financial Times article, you were asked, what would you do if you were not CEO? And usually people respond, you know, I'd be doing this or that. And you responded, I'd be CEO of a smaller organization or of an NGO. That's a very rare response. I mean, I, I checked these articles. Where you meant to be a CEO is, what do you love as much about this job? That was probably very presumptuous, but what I mean is that I like to create, I like to innovate, I like to be with a team, I like to work with people, I like to challenge, and that describes pretty much being 
a CEO, even of a very small company. I come from a farm. A farm is every day a CEO ship, right? And I think I would have done something where you do, right? You, you, and you create, and you innovate, and you move, and you discover. Yeah, I need that kind of discomfort to keep moving on, on that sort of energy. And I need the team. I need the customers, I need the suppliers, I probably need a lot of problems to confront, which I'm well served at the moment with the period we are in. But it's very exciting to build things together. As we said several times, develop people to the next stage. Last question. You've been chairman and CEO of this company, CEO of this company for more than 15 years. In French, we have an expression which is l'usure du pouvoir, which is you know, the wear and tear of power. I don't get any sense of this when I'm interacting with you. I get a sense of vitality and energy. And yet, as you said, the environment is super demanding. What are some of the tools, techniques, principles, practices that help you continue to be so energized after 16 years on the job and continue to allow you to be at your best 99% of the time? <laughs> well, 99 is probably ambitious. I think some people around me would say that, uh, yeah. That, that would but a be. high proportion. But anyway... I think what's important is always to have your mindset on the next two steps, right? Because that gives you an horizon that keeps you really excited, busy, and gives you a sense of... I think you have to be very stubborn strategically and very agile tactically, but you need Say that, that again, say that again. Stubborn strategically yeah. and agile tactically. Tactically, yeah. Because the world is always different. But at the end of the day, if you have that goalpost, which is pulling you some years ahead, then you have somewhere so many, yeah, have passion for what, what we can do, right? And always that passion for what we can do. And then you need other things. Frankly, since I became CEO or COO, and even when I uh, jumped on the XCOM of Schneider, well, I've been pretty much working. Uh, let's face it, there is some sacrifice that goes with it. But having a family, having a right circle of friends, having some passions outside, sports, outdoor sports in my case, traveling. I'm very masochistic when I'm finished with my professional travels and I'm heavy traveler. I go traveling into very weird places with my family and friends. So because I like to discover other parts of the world. And why I have that that keeps me finding a balance and you were asking me to be more personal between that hectic professional life and some other parts where I can really explore some other elements. I mean, the world is fascinating, right? You have art, you have music, you have plenty of uh, going to see a nice exhibition, going to a nice concert. It's really, really exciting. And visiting the world and meeting new people. Jean-Pascal, thank you very much. Congratulations to all these successes over the last 16 years and best wishes, of course, to you personally, but also to your organization. Because when we think of the problem that the world faces, your organization is one of the organizations that is very much helping us to find solutions. So thank you and all the best to you. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me for such a, a long time. And, I, and, uh, and thank you for your challenging questions. Merci beaucoup. Until next time.